This episode is brought to you by Serve HQ. Train your ministry volunteers, leaders, and new members online, fast, and easy with Serve HQ. Welcome to Leading Simple with Rusty George. Our goal is to make following Jesus and leading others a bit more simple. Here's your host, Rusty George. Hey, welcome to episode 223. I am so honored that you're back with us as we continue our conversation about how to lead in more of a simple fashion. Well, today we're going to talk with a pastor that walked into a situation where it was a great church. They'd had a long legacy of a great pastor, and he came in to take over, and he decided to go a different direction. You've probably heard some of these stories before of churches that decide to change the music or change the style of service or even change the carpet color, and it can create a lot of disarray and disruption. Well, he had to walk into that because of a personal conviction as to how he felt he could do church best. And by that, not just pull off a service, but how to truly make disciples. I've been fascinated with Pastor Drew Moore's story for some time now, and I've learned so much from him about what it means to make disciples. And I think you're really going to learn a lot from what he has to say in our conversation today. I want to thank our sponsor, Serve HQ. They are an incredible organization that helps churches to train their volunteers and make disciples online and easily. This is a great, great resource for you and your church. Go to servehq.church for more information. Well, here's my conversation with Pastor Drew Moore. Drew, it is great to have you on the podcast for our listeners who are not aware of who you are. Tell us who you are, and you're from Illinois, so does that make you... A U of I fan, or is that IU? Are you a Notre Dame fan? Walk us through this. Listen, uh, right in the middle of the state, uh, in the middle of nowhere, halfway between Chicago and St. Louis. So I'm U of I, Chicago Bears, Chicago Bulls, Chicago Cubs. I'm loyal to local, and uh, I don't follow them closely because when uh, you struggle that much, blind loyalty is just easier. And yeah. so uh, my brother early on decided he would go Cardinals. He went south, mm. so I decided to go north and went Cubs. But uh, being in Vegas now, I love the Raiders and the Golden Knights have our hearts here for sure. It's uh, it's a lot of fun to have some multiple loyalties. So you you went to uh, Lincoln Christian College and seminary. Uh, we have mutual connections there. But tell us about you got out of seminary, you went into ministry. Where was your first gig and how'd you get to Vegas? Yeah, for sure. Uh, out of high school, I was torn between youth ministry and teaching. I uh, went to college and made all the freshman year mistakes you can make. And so uh, I decided, you know, I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to do education. So I went into high school math teaching and football coaching, did that for seven years, but never left volunteering in a local church, a couple small churches, and then eventually Eastview Christian church, uh, where uh, alongside some friends, they put some trust in me and I got to step into student ministry there from, uh, 2005 to 2012. Uh, I got to pick up a master's from Lincoln Christian along the way, which was a really kind of redemptive thing, was cool, uh, and then came out here to Vegas in 2012. So you coming out to Vegas, uh, I mean, currently you are the the lead pastor of Canyon Ridge Community Church. Did you come out to do that job, or did you come out to do another job on their staff? 
Uh, I came out to lead uh, student ministry, middle school and high school. Okay. Uh, my years at Eastview were all in high school ministry, and uh, it just came time for a fresh season. So much love and gratitude to the folks at Eastview wouldn't be with who I am without them. It was just time to step into a different space, and so uh, the folks at CIY and others helped us make a, a connection out here, and we came to do student ministry. So I really had no view on the horizon other than to say, you know, culture change doesn't happen in less than seven to 10 years. So I said, hey, I'll be here for seven to 10. I don't know in what role or what capacity, but I'll be here for that run, likely in student ministry. Was your uh, family okay with moving to Vegas? <laughs> it depends on which part you ask. Uh, <laughs> my dad affectionately calls it Satan's backyard, which I just love. <laughs> You know, both of our families were within an hour and a half of where we were in Illinois. So it was a massive change. And yeah. uh, and while we included them some in the decision, we probably could have done better in honoring along the way. All that to say, everyone is on board and a fan and see what God's up to. Um, my wife and I, uh, we've been married almost 23 years. And we, we were in agreement. We wanted to do something challenging. We wanted to go somewhere we had never been. And uh, we didn't quite know what that meant. But we said yes to come in here. And it, it has been really great. Now, obviously, when we think of Vegas, we think of the Strip. We think of mm -hmm. the craziness that happens down there. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. But as our mutual friend Shane Phillips likes, Shane Phillip likes to say, um, you know, the people that come to Vegas are people that come from, you know, my church <laughs> out in L.A. and other churches yeah. that come yeah. there, not his people, uh, because they they might work there, but they live out in the suburbs. Um, yeah. What are you seeing? I mean, what is life like in Vegas? Who are the people you deal with? You know, it, it's not radically different from what we experienced in the in the Midwest in terms of suburban culture. Everything is affected by the Strip and by the hospitality industry. There's definitely different values, just like each city has, uh, but. People are hyper real here. They just yeah. are who they are. There's not really a sense of should or should not. There just is a sense of is. So you kind of get to meet people in the realness of life all the way along the way. Mm. Uh, and then, of course, it's a really transient city. Uh, between the two Air Force bases on our side of town and um, just Vegas in general, people are coming through all the time, bringing their culture from wherever they came from. So it's quite a hodgepodge. And we don't, we don't live in the thick of what you see on the Strip, but everything is definitely you know, rises and falls with people coming to town. Yeah, absolutely. So you guys uh, come out there to do student ministry. Uh, how is student ministry different in Vegas versus Illinois? You know, in Illinois, in Illinois, there were a number of uh, stabilizing factors, even though families, of course, have struggled everywhere. There was often support systems for multi-generational families. There's kind of the Bible Belt mentality, where even if there isn't necessarily a firm spiritual foundation, there's spiritual awareness. Mm, that's good. Uh, but on the downside, in the in the Midwest, you got to dig through some of the pretense of people pretending to be what they should be to get to what is real. It's kind of flipped on its head here, where, like I said earlier, people are who they are, uh, which is great. You can build from scratch, but you literally are building from scratch. Mm -hmm. Where in the Midwest, a family may have one kind of struggle, whether it be financial, relational, or any number of other struggles. Here, it often came in compound factors. Mm -hmm. You would kind of reach for one stabilizing place to start building from in people's lives, and they were hard to find. Yeah. Uh, and so, it, but, you know, it's ministry is ministry. You meet people where they are, as they are, and help them forward in the direction of Jesus from there. So yeah. we had to relearn some things, but it was, it's been great. Yeah, I think one of my big learnings was, you know, having come from the Midwest, uh, certainly in Kansas, Missouri, and Kentucky, people were very... Um, 
conservative with their lifestyle, at least on the surface, but yeah. progressive with their faith. There was always a new church starting to do it a little bit more mm. different or creative or we're going to do it liturgical or have incense or whatever it is. Yeah. I came out here and I just assumed that it would be like that, but it's it's the opposite. They're progressive with their lifestyle, but conservative with their faith because mm. either have none yeah. or they grew up Catholic and they just need you to make it a little bit more relatable to what they grew up with. Yeah. But they're really honest about what they're dealing with, don't you think? Yeah, 100%. Like, uh, everything, where in the Midwest people would have opinions like about church and the way it's done, or even, you know, various theological things that don't really matter on a Thursday afternoon. People just, if it doesn't matter on a daily basis here, people just aren't that interested. Right. So it's really fun with people to take the deep and meaningful, thoughtful things of our faith and walk them into the most daily aspects of life. Mm -hmm. It's really energizing. Yeah, that's so well said. Okay, so student ministry today versus 15 years ago, 10 years ago, I mean, it's it, it used to be if you build it, they will come. You just need a really cool program and kids start showing up and, you know, it's just yeah. a little bit of a Pied Piper syndrome. It's different now. Yeah. Uh, what were you seeing before you exited out of student ministry and maybe still seeing today with kids yourself uh, as to how student ministry is doing or what the challenges are these days? Yeah, you know, I'm seeing it more from the parent side these days. We have four yeah. kids. Uh, our oldest is going to be a sophomore. We have a couple of middle schoolers and one about to finish elementary school. And uh, listen, from a student ministry program side, I am so out of the loop. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. From a parent side, I watch the challenges that my kids are experiencing. You know, I exited student ministry where it was still okay to tell people not to bring their phones places. That's not even in people's world of possibility now, much less what's happening in terms of sexuality and things and the things that our kids are kind of constantly faced with and, and asked in terms of dealing with it. It's so so challenging right i think um i think that what i'm seeing in student ministry or what we're experiencing some is is really what we're trying to experience across our whole church is really equipping not just gathering and answering uh, i think there was a time where giving people a space to come together and like you said kind of pied piper people love to belong mm -hmm. there's a lot of ways to belong and virtually belong these days it mm -hmm. didn't used to be true uh, and so now wherever we belong really has to have meaning in helping us become the sort of people we want to become. And so that's, that's what I see our student ministry right now exploring pretty deeply in the kind of questions that are, at least our kids are asking as well. So you followed a, a legend of a lead pastor. And for those that don't know the context, um, Absolutely. you know, Mike Bro, who's a friend of real life and a friend of mine and, and all of ours, uh, started Canyon Ridge and got it up and going. And I think two years into it, uh, went back to uh, his home city of Lexington to take over the church that I was a part of and got to work with him. And, but when he left, uh, a guy by the name of Kevin Oder, very unfortunate last name, but I'm sure he's weathered it well. Uh, <laughs> he's got jokes. For oh, days. I bet he does. Uh, so so yeah. Kevin takes over. And <clears throat> I don't think Kevin really ever fancied himself as a lead guy, but he did it and he did it well for 20 plus years. And then he decides to yeah. retire, and you're the guy. How do you follow a legend? Because a lot of our listeners are having to do that right now. Yeah, well, a guy like Kevin makes it pretty easy uh, to, to step in behind him. Like He was so honoring and empowering. He shared so much leadership early on. I had the luxury of being around Canyon Ridge for uh, seven years. 
before stepping into the role. Uh, and so he just, he just handed things so freely and so well that it makes at least the transition side easy. Mm. You know, there's always the wake of people's expectations. Mm. Uh, Kevin's greatest strength, he would be the first to tell you and everyone experiences this way. He is a pastor's pastor. He, he shepherds first, like he meets you right where you are and he's just deeply, deeply personal. And so, uh, you know, following in the wake of someone's extreme gifting is definitely a challenge, Mm -hmm. but anything he could do as a leader to, to hand things off, he did and he did well. So you not only have to follow a legend, you are sensing, and God's wired you differently. Uh, you're not supposed yeah. to just be Kevin 2.0, which, right. boy, Kevin had to deal with that too, because Mike Bro is a very energetic, charismatic leader from stage, yeah. and Kevin is a lot more in the trenches one-on-one over a cup of coffee. So yeah. hats off to him for being who he was and is. Yeah. But now you have to do the same thing, and you're kind of wired differently, and you feel like the church needs to go in a different direction. Certainly, in these uh, these you know times in which we live, tell me a little bit about um, just the the some of the sea changes that you were sensing the church had to go on, and how you led through those. Give me a picture of what it was before and what it is you're trying to head to today. Yeah. You know, Kevin did a phenomenal job leading and definitely, he would say, I think, came into his own over many years of ministry. One of the things that people often forget in a transition is you are taking someone from a very seasoned part of their career and self-awareness and Mm -hmm. handing it to someone who's just stepping in. Mm -hmm. So it's not even just a difference of giftedness, it's a difference of longevity in your own giftedness. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so he stepped out at the height and in a season where his kids were, had already stepped out, this is a very different season of life. And they... uh, to his credit, he went away on a sabbatical, which is a high priority for us around here, and came back and felt like it was important to hand the church to the next generation. And so even the way that he began that process was really sharp. Hmm. He just sat me down and said, hey, Drew, uh, we're both football guys. Do you imagine yourself eventually being like a D coordinator or a head coach? Uh, and I said, well, my history has said I usually function better as, as the head coach. And he said, well, let's get you ready to do that. And if that's here, awesome. And if it's not, uh, we'll have you gotten you ready to do it somewhere else. Wow. And so he spent a year and a half doing that, you know, meeting on a regular basis, investing in me and helping me see how he was wired, how that affected the church and all that. Did just such a great job walking that in. And then eventually, as we went through a pretty extensive process of vetting me, cause we didn't want an internal candidate to just experience assumption. We didn't want to get on the other side of a transition and be like, well, Hey, maybe we didn't think this through. No, we thought it through. <laughs> so uh, he did all of that really well as well. One of the things that people said uh, along the way is that the church really did function as a family. It was a place to encounter other really great people. We were launching into groups and doing a lot of things that generally mega churches do pretty well. Uh, but one of the things they hired me to do a little bit differently was to deepen what, what they called discipleship along the way. That We felt like we were helping people meet Jesus and come as they are really well but we weren't always seeing uh, a lot of maturity on the other side. Hmm. And there were a lot of reasons and challenges for that pretty transient city and on at scale, that's a really hard thing to do. Yeah. And so the assumption with me coming in was that was a value of mine and a big part of my experience. And so that was actually a request coming in. We need to, we need to help turn the ship in that direction. So tell me some of the, well, first of all, let's, let's back up to that moment. You're going to turn the ship in this direction Give us a picture of, of, you know, 
the destination. What's it going to look like? What's your goal? And then let's back up to see some of the moves you made to get there. Yeah, sure. That probably would have been better to agree on a little bit with more specificity at the beginning. <laughs> uh, you know, for me, um, our destination has has a, a finer point on it than it used to. Yeah. I don't think it's radically different per se. It just has a finer point. We, we've zeroed in on the target a little more sharply. I don't think anybody's anti-discipleship. I don't think anybody's anti-disciple making even. Uh, but our, our pinpoint that we're going after at this point is... Um, a movement of disciple makers with too many generations to count. Uh, and that's different than just helping people grow up in their faith. Not that there's anything inherently bad about that. It's just we're aiming a little bit beyond that and with a little more specificity. So a lot of people use the language of movement. Um, and that's kind of a word that's been maybe cheapened a little bit. Um, but what we hope is that multiple generations, disciples who make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples is counted outside of even just the centralized church context. The opportunity of a transient city like we are in right now is that people are leaving all the time. And so the question we are asking is how do we hand them skill sets and capacities mm. that help them go begin movements everywhere they go? That's good. Uh, and so you know, if what if our target before was engagement, which I do think is a better marker than attendance, right? This is something that Newhoff and other people have really helped sharpen the language around. Engagement in and of itself doesn't necessarily drive disciple making unless what they're engaging is is focused on that. And so we've tried to sharpen more and more around that. When we see uh, movements, multiple generations of disciple makers popping up in other places, we'll know we're centering in on our target. What does that look like? Uh, there's so many different styles of what we would consider to be disciple making, yeah. and it's easy to kind of put it into a model. Like here's the you know the playbook yeah. uh, to go back to the football terms. We're going to go West Coast offense on this, right. or the run and shoot, or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. What is it that you think? Okay, if we do these five or six things, this puts us in the ballpark of of making a disciple. That's really been the exploration for the last couple of years of, of trying to deconstruct some of the things that maybe have become too institution centric and not really replicatable in the lives of everyday people. You know, we were saying earlier how important it is to walk these things into our daily lives. Well, it's hard to, to walk a massive mega, mega church service into a daily life. It's hard to take a really skilled preaching, which is still valuable and important and walk that into life. It's not something people can necessarily replicate. And so, um, what we've really been trying to do is dial back to specific values of simple, shareable tools, making sure that everything we do, uh, especially outside the weekend service, has an every believer, a priest quality to it, meaning that everyone has contribution. They're not just receiving. They're not just being informed. They're actually contributing and participating in the training experience so they could actually walk away and do it, not just be aware of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, for example, um, just a specific example, you've got a man named Ryan who got, um, he's got a year deployment in Korea, uh, but after a short season of walking through some of the training tools that we handed him, he's got a small group of people who he is multiplying and inviting people in Jesus direction. They're looking into the word together. They're obeying well, they're sharing with their coworkers. Hmm. Uh, we had some other air force folks redeployed over there who have jumped into that as well. And so, you know, the win would be that the surrounding area at that 
Air Force Base a year from now after Ryan has left and Russell and the others have left, uh, there's still a movement of people looking into the scripture, doing what Jesus said, sharing it with others in a way that call people alive in Jesus. Hmm. So that's kind of center of the bullseye multiple generations down the road. Okay, so does this happen in a small group study? Does this happen over coffee? Does this happen large group setting? You're going to say yes to all, but g- give me some yeah. specifics here. <laughs> you know, what we've explored most is taking everything we do from engagement and groups and making it about disciple making. Okay. So eventually in the life of an individual, what we're doing is we're mapping all of the places that they go and the faces that they see with simple questions like, who do you know that you're close to, but they're far from God? And how could you invite them? How can you share with them both your testimony? How do we, we're training people in 15 second testimonies and, hmm. and how to share the scriptures uh, in a way that invites them to discover who Jesus is from the scripture with them. Hmm. And then handing them simple tools like discovery Bible study, or some people use three thirds. They're very similar. That are replicatable, easily learned tools that help people engage people in the scriptures outside of the church context. Mm. So it could happen over a coffee break. We got a, a, a group popping up at Creech Air Force Base. Oh, we got people doing this on their break at the hospital um, where they're just looking into the word and obeying their way in Jesus' direction together. So, yes, it looks like small groups, but not in a like small groups ministry model per se. Uh, when we do engagement at our church, we don't do, uh, here's how you get involved at Canyon Ridge. We do two straight weeks of like a basic disciple making toolkit in a highly relational context. And what we're finding is that people find both the relationship they're looking for and begin down the road of disciple making that we really want to call people toward. Okay. So, all right, this is really good. Let's say I am Joe Vegas. Mm -hmm. Uh, I got, you know, a couple of really strong addictions I'm dealing with. I got all kinds of uh, mm-hmm. uh, questions and issues in my life, a history of abuse, mm-hmm. a divorce, all these things. And I wander into Canyon Ridge yeah. because somebody invited me. Sure. And I, you know, service is great. Yeah. Uh, what's my next step? Uh, our hope is that the person that you invited, that invited him along with, uh, steps into and is equipped to to walk them through the scriptures together. Okay. We do not expect that person to provide all the care someone struggling with multiple addictions and other things need. There's always going to be a need for care ministries and a certain amount of expert support, whether it be counseling, recovery ministry, that sort of thing. But what we don't want to do is take over the disciple making of that individual from the person that connected them to our church. Okay. What we want to do is equip the person who is already connected to them, already has trust with them, already has knowledge of that with whatever we can to support them to support their friend. There's really not a lot that we need to do as an organization that that individual, if they were even, if they were a well-trained novice, couldn't do without us. And if we can do that, if we can equip them and support them to support their friend, now we've not only supported their friend, but we've equipped this person to do that again in the future with other people. Hey, let me interrupt this podcast for just a second. Every church leader knows that having trained and engaged volunteers is essential to successfully accomplishing your mission. But if you're like most leaders, you also know how tricky it can be to onboard and equip people for your team. 
What if there was a resource that made it easier? Let me recommend ServeHQ to you. ServeHQ is simple video training courses that help you equip volunteers and develop leaders. You can create your own training or use their video library. You can even automate next steps to onboard new people. Check it out at servehq.church. Now, back to our conversation. Okay, so let's get into org chart. Oh boy. Because so much of our of our church staffing is to provide for the 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 care of our people, our parishioners, all of that, our sure. Bible studies, our yeah. uh, classes, those we can go way back to Sunday school days, that kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. Do you even need that anymore? Uh, <laughs> well, this is the dichotomy we're living in uh, currently at, at Canyon Ridge, at least, is one, I don't think that's going away uh, in, in its entirety anytime soon. Partly because at least here we live in a rotational place where people are showing up with that expectation all the time. Right. Our hope is not just to meet people and satisfy that expectation, but rather to shift that and empower and equip them to be the kind of solution, uh, for their friends that, that God has really invited them to be elsewhere. Our staff needs to think multiplicatively all the time. A lot of times we're designed to add more and more people into ministries where, trained and vetted leaders and staff members kind of oversee and um, in a worst case scenario are kind of heroic leaders where all roads lead to them and their leadership, Mm. Uh, which is fine and great because some people really do have massive capacity to to help people, but they are going to hit a ceiling no matter how high their capacity is. That capacity increases exponentially if they're actually equipping others constantly to do what they're able to do. Uh, and so we try, we are trying as much as possible as a staff to stay out of a, any sort of heroic position and s- stop trying to be an answer or a solution for people, but rather be a support and an empower of those to, to help their friends along. We're always going to need, I think, in an organization, going to need to be able to meet people where they are and oversee kind of the the process and any sort of movement that's coming about. We're always going to be meeting people with their expectations, but sure. Yeah. It has to take a training and equipping and multiplying others mentality and and everything that we have, if we're really going to have substantial impact, I think. How does a weekend service tie into this? Um, Do you do any kind of questions based upon the weekend teaching that help people in discussion? Um, how do you teach differently now than maybe you would have 10 years ago? Yeah. Uh, walk us through that a little bit. <laughs> Rusty, we have so many questions. <laughs> Honestly, our weekend team, and this is hard, I, and I've been acknowledging our weekend team for this. Uh, they spent multiple hours wrestling through what assumptions have we made about the role of the weekend service as they relate to creating oh, disciple yeah. makers. That's good. It's, and that's hard. Those tentacles run deep. We've made a lot of assumptions for a lot of years about what should come out of a weekend service in the life of an individual. And they, they're really well-intentioned and they're really high hope. I think one of the things that inspired some of this change for us is People asked us, you know, where, how many, how many people can you point at that have multiple generations of disciples made? And it was really hard to find them. It was really hard. And so I think unintentional, some of the unintentional consequence of the excellence culture we have around some of our weekend stuff to engage people 
is it's demotivating to people. It takes away some of their agency. Hmm. Uh, one of the downsides of even like, I love Andy Stanley's invest and invite. So many people have used this and I think that matters. I don't think that's in any way bad at all, but the unintentional consequence is that when COVID hits and there isn't a place to invite people, people are ill-equipped and they're not quite sure what to do. Yeah. Uh, and so we, we just have to wrestle that to the ground. Some of the changes we've made is I've really, this is going to, this is going to offend so many people. Um, I spend way less time working on teaching than I ever have. Yeah. I've been in ministry 17 years. I've been in cultures where the expectation is, you know, 15, 20, 25 hours of teaching prep. And I've sat in meetings where people talk about, you know, study teams and that sort of thing. Listen, I spend a very a small amount of time doing that. Not because it's not important. Um, I just have been experimenting with how important is it really? Yeah. If we're teaching biblically faithfully, I got plenty of eyes on that. We're not phoning this thing in. We're not repeating other people's sermon. It's original. It's meaningful. Uh, but I just don't spend as much time as I did. And our weekend team with worship and things, we're exploring what if more and more excellence isn't actually what's needed not because there's any lack of heart we have the purest of hearts and most amazing people who do things with the deepest kind of authenticity but we've made the assumption that sharper and better is going to have more benefit and we're trying to explore hmm. maybe that's maybe that's not as true as we've always thought it has what are some other assumptions we've made who <laughs> that's a risky question come on <laughs> uh We have assumed that a well-trained expert is more potent than a well-trained novice. Uh, we have assumed that a certain amount of longevity and expertise is needed before people can multiply as a disciple. Mm. Um, we have assumed that um, getting people within the proximity of staff or approved leaders at the church is actually their best foot forward in following Jesus. Hmm. Um, we, we've assumed that someone, uh, that, that discipleship. And by that, I think people usually mean growing up in their faith is required before disciple making hmm. like inviting other people in Jesus direction, like helping shape, helping participate in them being shaped like Jesus. I, I, this is a lot of those assumptions I'm I'm wary of. We've assumed that engagement will lead to disciple making, yeah. and I don't know if that has actually proven a kind of engagement. I think can, uh, but I'm not sure that's actually true. So. Mm, that's really good. All right, <laughs> man, this is good stuff, Drew. Thank you for being so honest. Yeah, you know, you asked me earlier about things that we've changed, and honestly, man, I really just think we're trying to recalibrate the soil in which we're living. Like how have our behaviors taken away the agency or um, confidence of people unintentionally? How have we tried to help so much that we've actually limited their ability to, to take an active agency and being a, a disciple maker? Mm. How, how have we put the church at the center of things um, with the fullest of heart and greatest of intentions, but sometimes less helpfully than we meant to? And, and how can we explore taking just a step back, not imploding, like, let's not get fatalistic about this. I don't think the local church or a weekly gathering is going anywhere anytime soon, nor do I think it should. 
But what has to change about it to help elevate the, if we really believe every believer is a priest, are they really experiencing and finding the kind of support and discomfort and us not stepping in to rescue in ways that make that really likely to come about in, in a, in a large portion uh, of the people that we get to encounter. Which is so counterintuitive, especially out on the West Coast, or certainly where I live. I'm assuming Vegas is a little bit like this. It has such a high Catholic population. They just assume the priest is the, the all-knowing. Yeah. And so they assume that I'm the all-knowing. So, I mean, you yeah. know how it is. You always, totally. you always get asked to pray at every meal and yeah. uh, looked at in every small group you're in. So Totally. Uh, it's a blast. Yeah, it really is. It's very... <laughs> It's, it's a blast to watch people's eyes like light up, like when they when you push them into that role. Right. Like, exactly. This is so, this is so simple. I'm sure everybody's already doing this, but one of the ways we've really like visibly uh, lived out every believer priest in a different way is we all we like do anything we can to avoid a pastor. That's kind of the big term here in Vegas. And in, in the Midwest, it was minister. Yep. Pastor means elder and shepherd, but, and I was very Baptist, whatever. But yep. here it's like that pastor <laughs> is the word and pastor is like the, like the not Catholic priest. Right. Right. And so, uh, we just try to keep pastors out of as many roles as possible. So when we push family members and we say, Hey, what would it take for you to baptize your friend? You know, the, your family members getting baptized. That's amazing. Who's been part of that story? What would it, how could we help you? What, how could we stand behind you? Yeah, And this visible expression of people stepping into even that simple act of ministry, such a powerful moment that feels so sacred, like you said, to especially we have a high Catholic population as well. The, the honor to the priest and, and to the pastor is so high. It's actually one of the greatest opportunities to push others forward and try to melt that paradigm just a little bit. I completely agree. That's one of our, our greatest joys is when we tell people, you can baptize your own family, yep. and it just blows their mind that they can do that, and yeah. and it's so fun. And then how do we follow that up with, like, here's the next thing you thought I yes. was supposed to do that it's actually you get to do exactly. if we'll actually train and equip you and support you. Yeah. Now make sure you're here every Sunday for the rest of your life so I can train <laughs> Yeah, totally. Right. I have to laugh when you said the whole thing about we didn't use the term pastor back in the Midwest. That was such a foreign. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're right. Only the Baptists said that, so we weren't allowed to say that. Mm-hmm. And then I come out here, and people not only use the term, they call me by that name, yes. Pastor Rusty or Pastor. Yep. And I tried for years to get them to stop, and now I just, okay, whatever. We'll roll with it. You know, man, uh, I've got a young, I mentioned him earlier. His name is Russell. Uh, he's a young airman, and... Uh, he just refused to stop calling me that. And part of it is Air Force culture and respect and rank and all yep. that sort of stuff, which I deeply agree. So I've just started calling him that. Uh, <laughs> we're going to melt this thing one way or another. Uh, we've got a guy on our safety team, too, who runs security at one of the casinos here in town. A real yeah. strong guy, but just such a shepherding pastoral heart. And yeah. We just call him Pastor Richard because he is doing such powerful, impactful ministry uh, to everyone he encounters. It's just amazing to watch. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. I, I, I want to ask you this because you brought it up. No, boy. How, how do you train people to share their testimony in 15 seconds? Yeah. Well, listen, we have stolen so many tools from different places. And if you all look across anyone who's working on disciple-making movements, tools abound. And you have to have the right soil to plant them in. So just right. adopting tools is not going to be a mechanical solution. you got to right. recalibrate the culture and taking down hero culture and other things. but 
on the flip side of that, it's pretty simple. I think we stole it from the no place left guys. It's two words that describe your life before Jesus. And then Jesus, two words that describe your life after Jesus. And then this is the most important part. Do you have a story like that? Because what we want to do is open conversations, not close them. What we want to do is invite exchange, not, uh, not deliver information. Yeah. So, you know, this isn't super well practiced, but here's a version for me. There was a time in my life. This is how we always start. There was a time in my life when I thought competition and winning over is how I established my identity. So I competed with anyone and everyone, even inside the church. But then Jesus taught me along the way and showed me through some really important people how powerful it is to partner, support, and lift up others. It completely changed me. Do you have a story of change like that? Boom. And so I don't know how long that took, but it wasn't too far off. And, and it adjusts based on the conversations I'm in at my coffee shop or at the gym or wherever I might be. But it's just an invitation to talk about change in our life um, that we've been training pretty widely across our church. That's so much easier than uh, if you die tonight and you sit before the pearly gates. Yeah, <laughs> that, yeah. That's I mean, so that, good. There's a time for that, I guess. You know, proclamation evangelism is it is what it is. This is um, you know more on the relational evangelism side. I think that's part of why we've been uh, exploring Discovery Bible Study as well, because one of the practices within it is to retell the story in your own words as if you were telling your neighbor. Mm -hmm. And when we practice that together, it actually comes way more naturally when we show up on base or show up at the, like I said, the coffee shop or the gym or the grocery store or wherever we are. Yeah. Just trying to become sharers, not to direct anything, but just to invite curiosity. Yeah. You know? That's so good. Okay. Um, I, I got to imagine there are some people out there that are leading churches thinking, I'm in. I want to do this. I've been thinking this for some time. Yeah. You did this. And I mean, it's it's not always easy. I mean, there's the challenge of, of tending the soil, but then there's the challenge of changing people's paradigm. Yeah. Uh, what kind of pushback did you receive? And what were some things you didn't expect that you had to weather through this transition? You know, uh a buddy of mine will say that your past success is the best predictor of your future failure. I imagine that's a uh, quote from somebody, but I don't know who it's from. So it's from my buddy. <laughs> okay. Uh, your past success is the best predictor of your future failure. Uh, the things that were really effective in like invest invite, invest and invite really did help people find their way to inviting their friends to church. It's really, it's important and it matters. And yet on the flip side, it also, the unintended consequence for a lot of people is that it deferred disciple making to the church once you've invited them. Uh, and so uh, we learned that people had a lot of success in the past. It was really hard to set down. Hmm. Uh, we had a lot of leaders, uh, including staff members who were used to trying to provide answers and train leaders and, and do what we would call somewhat heroic leadership. And to try to step back and create discomfort that other people could step mm. into and to stand behind them instead of stand out front was really hard for some. Yeah, uh, It just wasn't a kind of leadership they were used to, accustomed to, trained in, and they weren't particularly interested in. Uh, there were some along the way who, um, both uh, staff and lay leaders, who felt like it is the church's job to be the answer for people uh, rather than to support them and train them and equip them to to follow jesus with their people uh and so it felt really unloving at times to not try to be the answer or try to be the rescuer for people along the way mm -hmm. so like a specific example would be well it's the church's job to get people in groups well i mean that's one way to do it 
uh, it does presume that people have ended up at church before they get into a group. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it leaves everyone who's not attending a church inside people's relational networks out of luck until you get them to the church. Yeah. Uh, and so how do we help people form groups within their natural relationships rather than wait for them to arrive at a church so that a staff can put them in groups? I don't know which is better. I just know which one feels like it leads more to agency, every believer, a priest, and multiplicative disciple making. So that's why we're exploring it. I did not expect sitting in an elder meeting where someone said it is not every believer's job to make disciples. I didn't expect that. <laughs> and I think it just comes from a, there's just a lot of, uh, there's a lot of difference in what people mean by that. Yep. You know, I think early on we were really clumsy in our communication and it sounded a lot like everyone is a rogue and lone disciple maker. Mm. And I, and so in that sense, I would totally agree with that elder. It is not everyone's job alone to make disciples. Jesus didn't ask anybody to do that. We were called to do it together. All of us are called, I believe, to be disciple makers in the context of community mm. uh, and in, in the context of friendships and partnerships with people. and let's not flip the script all the other way. And it's not either all by myself alone out there or only in the institutional church. Those aren't the only two options. Mm. Uh, Creating partnerships and relationships, prayerfully going together in the places that we go, the faces that we see, that's really what we're shooting for these days. So, Uh, If you could rewind and did it all over again, give me a couple things you would have done differently. You mentioned being a little bit more clear less clumsy, anything that comes to mind that you think, "Mm, wish I would have said that. Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, I made a huge rookie mistake. I, I, you know, there are things that you learn and then a whole new level of context of the same thing shows up and you, and you botch it. And I did this, uh, in the middle of the urgency and crisis of a global pandemic, I chose to lead how I like to be led rather than offer the leadership that different people needed at different times. Mm, That's really good. So I'm a frontier, cutting edge, let's explore, burn the ships kind of leader. And, and, you know, if in crisis you become your truest self, I definitely, (laughs) you know, a lot of people in the pandemic, shepherds are like, let's get people together and make sure everybody's good. And I'm just like, I'm a coach. I went right back to my football coach years and said, hey, I got a whistle, everybody get on the line, let's go. And, um, you know, there's a time for each of those. It's never always time for one or the other. That's so good. And so I, I definitely overshot change mm. and sacrificed continuity. And you always have to hold both. You have to show up like a leader that people need, not just the leader you want to be. And, uh, and you got to offer the right mm. and delicate blend of continuity and honoring what has been and uh, change in the direction of what, what could and should be. Yeah. I hope we never go through another pandemic like that. <laughs> but on the other hand, I'd hate to waste all the things I learned the first go around, you know? Oh my goodness. Because yeah. the things that I mean, I keep telling people, I'm sorry, it's my first pandemic. So yeah. you know, we, we just we lived and learned. Um okay, so for our listeners out there, I'd love to know more. Um give us a couple of resources, maybe a books, podcasts, uh websites that have been really helpful for you and just shaping your thinking when it comes to disciple making? Yeah, you know, uh, it's a blend of a lot of different things. I think, honestly, the best thing we have done is rub shoulders with people working in dispersed movements. So whether that's No Place Left, T4T, some of the international movements going on, um, 
one particular resource that's pretty accessible is the starfish and the spirit from the Casey underground folks, a uh, really solid book uh, to explore this blend. It's not exactly a traditional church turned movement model, but it'll help you explore kind of the other end of things. Uh, I did appreciate um, several chapters from uh, future church. I thought his model of upper room and lower room was, it really gave us some common language to share from. I thought seven laws were, were solid, but really more of the thing I appreciated was the upper room, lower room, and the, um, and honestly, the eras of church. I think there are some things around the way church has formed in every era, the church has served really important purposes, but we're stepping into a different kind of era, which are going to require a different kind of approach. Yep. So just that kind of mindset I thought was, was really helpful from him. Um, uh, there's a book called the beautiful constraint, which is not a ministry book at all, but I really love, Oh yes. There's just going to be so many can't becauses that come up when you think about taking a tractional legacy church and turning in the direction of a disciple making movement, a lot of can't becauses and the can if frame from the beautiful constraint, which is honestly what shaped a lot of this for us. The movement, or excuse me, the pandemic became the beautiful constraint. Yeah. This creates an opportunity for creativity and space, maybe like nothing else. And so what is it that God has for us in the midst of this? Uh, so those are some that we... Couldn't agree more. Those are some that we point people to. Oh, oh my goodness. I almost forgot my favorite one. Uh, it's called The Other Half of Church by Jim Wilder. Mm. It's not about movements, but it is about culture and soil. And uh, this kind of change and shift has everything to do with uh, relationship, joy, connection, and correction. And all of those are visited really deeply in Wilder's book. If you haven't encountered him and the Emmanuel lifestyle practices to stay relational with God and with one another through change, it is it's the most formative book I've read in the last year for sure. That's awesome. That's great stuff, man. I got a ton of stuff to read. Yeah. Beautiful Constraint. I've been banging that drum for months now because I heard about it from another podcast guest and I read it and I thought, oh my goodness, this is amazing. And uh, yeah. just the stories alone are incredible, like painting the chickens blue and yep. stuff like that. It'll blow your mind, but he's right. It's, it's the, uh, that Apollo 13 moment of this is all they have. Yeah. What do we do? Yeah. It's mindsets that need to shift. Yep. Too many times I think in the church, we're trying to change mechanics. Yep. This is not a technical solution we're heading into, I don't think. It's an adaptive solution that requires change within us. Yep. And so Wilder and the beautiful constraint really help shift some mindsets in us that, that really create the context for this to happen. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Drew, this has been awesome. If people want to connect with you, where can they find you? You know, the best way, I don't spend a lot of time uh, writing or promoting or anything like that. So really, it's just Instagram, email. CanyonRidge.org is our church's website. We're just trying to be faithful with what God has with us here. And if there's ways we can co-learn with others, we want to. We've got a lot of young church plants, uh, a number of young church plants and some ministries that we're just learning alongside. Hmm. We're always looking to grow that community. Uh, I'm also connected a little bit with Bobby Harrington over at Renew. We've got a little cohort of people trying to do this, what they're calling hybrid church. Hmm. We're meeting people in an attractional model expectation, but walking them in the direction of a disciple-making movement that has been really interesting. So you could always reach out to those folks as well. Very cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, best of luck to you with uh, four kids yeah. and uh, three girls and one boy, right? Uh, actually, the opposite. So, oh, listen, the opposite. You, you just okay. made me very nervous. No. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, deep I, breath. 
Oh, yes. Okay. We love them, man. That's so great. great. Well, I appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. Yep. See you, man. Well, thank you, Drew, for being on the show. And thank you so much for your input into our listeners' lives. I would love for you to pass this along to somebody who you think might be uh, appreciative of this content. Make sure you share it with somebody else. Leave a review. That would really mean the world to me. And next week, we'll be back with a, a leadership guru that's on a seminary staff. Um, a, a, a pastor and a professor by the name of Todd Bolsinger. He's written a great series of books on leadership. You're definitely going to want to read and hear from. He'll be with us next week, so make sure you check that out. Also, our Leadership Through Crisis course, Leading Through Crisis Without Becoming One, is now available. You can just go to my website, PastorRustyGeorge.com, to find out more. We'd love for you to check that out. Well, thank you so much for listening, and as always, keep it simple. Take a moment and subscribe to the podcast so you get it delivered every week. And subscribe to the Rusty George YouTube channel for more devotionals, messages, and fun videos. Thank you for listening to Leading Simple.